Amen. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Life is full of decisions, isn't it? And there's been a plethora of bad decisions throughout lifetime, right? One of the worst decisions in American business history happened in 1876 when Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell the telephone patents to Western Union President William Orton for, listen to this, $100,000. And if you know this story, you know how Orton replied. He said, what use could this company make of an electrical toy? How many of you have an electrical toy on you right now? Can you show it even? I mean, hey, when do you get to show these in church? Look at them all around. Orton realized that the telephone was soon to replace the telegraph and told his colleagues that he would pay $25 million for those patents. And Bell was not interested bad decision. 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank advised Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in this new motor car company, saying, the horse is here to stay. The automobile is a novelty. Curious, how many of you rode your horse to church this morning? I've yet to see a hitching post on these properties, but maybe we have one. I don't know, right? How about this? How many of you drove a Ford actually to church? Wow. And you even made it without breaking down. Good job. (laughs) I'm a Chevy guy. I was waiting for that moment, all right? In 2017, the NFL draft, the Chicago Bears chose quarterback Mitchell Trubinsky over quarterback Patrick Mahomes. And if you follow football at all and know this story, you know that Patrick Mahomes has two Super Bowls, two Super Bowl MVPs, and two NFL MVPs. And that's just in his first six seasons. Any team would love to have that guy as their quarterback. So all we can say to that is, duh, bears, right? (laughs) Bad decisions galore. And we can look at all these bad decisions and many others, and we can laugh as we've been doing this morning. But remember, those who made those decisions in those moments, they didn't have the information that you and I have today. And all of us can look at bad decisions that we have each made in our lifetime and we can reflect on those bad decisions and say, if I knew today what I, if I I knew today what I know now, back then, finish the statement, I would not have made the same decision, right? All of us are guilty of making decisions bad decisions. That's why it's imperative to use wisdom and discernment when it comes to especially the important decisions of life. And 
This morning, we're going to be focusing on the most important decision of life. And this is the one that actually impacts where you spend eternity. Jesus warned, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world? If you are financially wise and successful, what will that profit you if you forfeit your soul? And I would hate for anyone who's listening to make it big in this life and to miss out on Christ for all eternity, which is why we're going to be spending the next few weeks focusing on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us hope, hope, which is going to be our Easter series title, hope. And so I invite you this morning as we kick this series off to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27. And again, I know I'm dropping you deep into a book of the Bible and there's so much leading up to this. And so I just want to kind of give you some context so you can understand what exactly is going on here. In Matthew chapter 27, Christ is facing his sixth and final trial. He's before Pilate, the governor of Judea. They're at this place called the Praetorium known as the Hall of Judgment. And gathered at this residence, as you'll see unfold in this narrative, there are the chief priests, there are the elders, there's this Jewish crowd, and together these people make the worst decision of all time, period. And so I want you to look with me at verses 15 through 31 as we read through this narrative and then unpack it together. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. 
they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, (laughs) King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Terrible decision. And this terrible decision affected the Jews with physical judgment. Not many years after these very Jews tried to overthrow the Romans themselves, and that did not end well. If you're familiar with ancient world history, you know that the Romans ransacked the Jews, destroyed much of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the Jewish people were scattered. And they remained that way for 1,878 years until they became a nation on May 14, 1948. They suffered physical judgment for this worst decision. But infinitely worse than that, everyone on that day, that Friday of the Holy Week, everyone who rejected Christ and did not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus suffers eternal judgment in hell. So I ask you this morning, what will you do with Christ? That's the question for you. Their bad decision that we just read in the scriptures is recorded in the Bible so that all of us can learn from it, friends. So that all of us can avoid making the same terrible decision. You see, if you reject Christ, you will be condemned. That's the Bible's message. See this in verse 15, during the Passover feast, Pilate pulled this political stunt in an effort to try to win favor back with these Jews, try to improve his relationship with them. You can read through the Gospels and you can understand that this man, Pilate, was not liked at all by the Jews. Luke 13 tells us he killed some Jews from Galilee. We understand that he would provoke them by deliberately violating their laws. And his superiors kept changing their rules and their relations with the Jews. And he most definitely wanted to remain in power, didn't want to lose power at all. But he had this bad relationship with the Jews and he thought, hey, during this big celebration for them, the Passover feast, I'm going to make a tradition where I can release to them someone they want and try to smooth things over with them. And verse 16 says that there's this well-known prisoner called Barabbas. He would be known as a freedom fighter. AKA a rebel. He was in prison because he was involved in an insurrection against the Roman government. And because the Jews hated Rome, you can understand most of the Jews there would have thought Barabbas is a hero. 
Verse 17 and 18, Pilate tried to present a way, though, for Christ to be spared from death because, as we see in this narrative, he was convinced that Jesus was innocent. He was completely suspicious of the Jewish crowd's motives, their intentions. You see that in verse 18. And not only was he convinced that Jesus was innocent, his wife, verse 19, she himself, herself came up to him while he was on the seat for judging and says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much because of him in a dream. And the Romans certainly viewed dreams as a divine means of guidance. And you can believe that God, through that dream to Pilate's wife, was saying to her, to Pilate, and to the whole world that his son is innocent. She declared, verse 19, he's righteous. Pilate, in this narrative, declared that he did no evil. At the very beginning of Matthew 27, you can look at this. You can kind of skim through it as I'm talking to you. Judas, his betrayer, even declared that he betrayed innocent blood and tried to return the money. So you look at all this being written about in Matthew 27 by Matthew himself. Church, what kind of message do you think Matthew's trying to get out to his audience? He's trying to tell them what? Jesus is what? The spotless lamb of God. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. And yet the Jewish chief priests, elders in the crowd, as we looked at this narrative, they willfully rejected the Messiah. They were relentless. All they wanted was Jesus dead. Verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, destroy Jesus. They convinced this Jewish crowd with sayings possibly like, Barabbas, he's more of a messianic figure than this Jesus. Barabbas actually tried to overcome Rome. Jesus won't overthrow Rome. He's not the leader we want. And Pilate, he's a threat to your government. You can imagine what these Jewish leaders were saying to have this crowd call for Barabbas over Christ. And it really is hard for us as believers to wrap our minds around how could they willfully reject Jesus, the Messiah. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around, even though we haven't even looked at this portion of the narrative, how could Judas willfully betray Christ? Or Matthew 26, hard for us to wrap our minds around. How could Peter willfully deny his Lord? None of this as believers in God makes sense to us. But Matthew records all of these terrible decisions to show us just how powerful sin is in a deceitful and desperately sick heart. 
draw your attention again to verses 21 through 23. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? They said, crucify him. And he said, well, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. If you've ever been to Soldier Field or to the United Center or maybe to a venue similar size, and have ever heard a crowd chant, defense, defense. I mean, it's deafening how loud the crowd can get. Imagine that sound with the word, crucify, crucify. That's what was going on this day. Adamant that he be crucified because the law said, cursed is a man on a tree. When it comes to their bad decision, the Bible says in multiple places, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 16, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And sadly, far too many people think that if I reject Christ, that's what's really going to get me freedom. That's what's really going to get me happiness. I don't want this Jesus I want to be free. I want to be happy. I want to live the way I want. And they go living that type of a life in rejection of the Lord and only realize when it's too late, whoa, I'm a slave and I'm going to die. One of those people is pictured right here. His name is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was the third vice president of the United States. If you know anything about that time, he actually tied Thomas Jefferson. But Andrew Hamilton made sure that he did not get the presidency. Thomas Jefferson did. Andrew Burr was the vice president. 1804, Alexander Hamilton made sure that Andrew Burr lost the vice presidency. So you can imagine a little rift between Burr and Hamilton, right? And if you know the history, Burr challenged Hamilton to a what? A duel, a shootout. And what happened? Burr killed Hamilton. And fled. And he was a wanted man, wanted for murder, later wanted for treason. He was acquitted. He was released. And he went on to live an unproductive and an unhappy life for 32 more years. He killed Hamilton at the age of 48. And he died at the age of 80. You say, well, where are you going with this? What's the big whoop? This man grew up in a godly home. A home that had the greatest American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, was his grandpa. And Jonathan Edwards died when Burr was two years old. And later on in Burr's life, he 
said, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would let me alone, I would let him alone. And God's not bothered me since. Aaron Burr got what he wanted. And his terrible decision led to eternal death. The chief priests, the elders, the crowd, they got what they wanted. And their terrible decision eventually led to judgment and destruction. They serve as a warning to us, listeners. If you reject Christ, you will be condemned for judgment. They willfully rejected Christ. Pilate, however, passively rejected Christ, and he was condemned to judgment. He made, as we've read, several attempts to try to release Jesus, totally convinced that he was innocent. At the first trial, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. It's under his jurisdiction. I'm going to let Herod deal with this mess. And Herod tried Jesus, realized he was innocent, mocked him, and shipped him back to Pilate. And so here we are, Matthew 27, this final trial. And Luke tells us that Pilate offered to punish and then release Christ, but the crowd vehemently refused and rejected that proposal. He offered to get rid of Barabbas, a guilty criminal instead. The crowd fiercely insisted that Jesus be the one that dies. And so verse 24, when Pilate fearfully saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he cowardly caved in, friends. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. Washing of the hands was something the Jews did. That was their custom. They did this to indicate innocence. And so a Roman washing the hands in the front of Jews is nothing other than a mockery to them. Telling them, I tried to release this Jesus to you and you wouldn't let me and I'm innocent of this man's blood. Now, we do know this. The Bible says in Acts that God anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever his hand, his plan had predestined to take place. So I'm glad that that's in the scriptures because it tells us that none of these characters in this narrative could have ever thwarted the redemptive plan of God. It was going to happen. All right? So we need to understand that. But we also need to understand that all of them are guilty of rejecting Christ and were condemned to judgment. They had human responsibility. And all the people in verse 25 horribly answered Pilate after he did that washing of hands thing. And they said, let us be cursed. His blood be on us and our children. And so now Pilate's in this tight spot. Philo, a first century Jewish philosopher, wrote that Pilate was afraid that if the Jewish embassy were sent to Rome, they might discuss the maladministration of his government, his extortions, his unjust decrees, and his inhuman punishments. 
A 19th century Scottish pastor wildly observed at this point, there's nothing that so frustrates good resolutions and paralyzes noble efforts as the dead weight of past sins. If people know things about us, we're afraid to do anything to displease them for fear they will use the past against us. So because of Pilate's past sins, he did not rule the Jews, they now ruled him. Those sins were sucking him like a giant whirlpool towards this fatal decision regarding Christ. And I really like what Warren Wearsby observed as he was reading the crucifixion narratives. He pointed out that Pilate yielded to the world, listened to the crowd. Peter, Matthew 26, yielded to the flesh, denied his Lord. And then Judas, beginning in chapter 27, yielded to the devil in his great sin. World, flesh, devil. In the end here, Pilate compromised his conscience. He violated God's moral law. He selfishly pursued personal gain in this moment instead of the interest of Christ. He released, verse 26, for them Barabbas and having scourged, Jesus. If you know anything about scourging, um, I think Josephus gives us a visual that helps us understand the agony that Christ went through in that moment. He's a Jewish historian, a military leader. He said the Romans used a leather whip with pieces of bone and or metal embedded in the thongs in order to weaken prisoners in a brutal, ruthless, inhumane way by turning their flesh into pulp and exposing their bones and internal organs. And so when Pilate made this passive decision, friends, it was obvious he was trying to save face, trying to keep peace, trying to climb up the political ladder. Probably thought he was crushing it as a leader that day. Wow, look at me. I patched things up with Herod. We're friends now. Who would have thought? I stamped out a riot that was brewing. I soothed over an angry mob. I dodged a nasty tongue lashing from my superiors, maybe even from Caesar himself. Look at me. Look what kind of job I'm fit to lead. But from a spiritual standpoint, friends, this Friday was the very worst day of Pilate's life. He ended up rejecting Christ, the innocent son of God. And verse 26, delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27 says, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, gathered the whole battalion of 600 soldiers before him, and they stripped him. And to the Jews, there was nothing more embarrassing and shaming than being seen naked in public. They stripped him. Stop to think of the excruciating pain even that brought. If you've ever had surgery, and when it comes time to clean your wound, and they remove those bandages, 
What does that feel like? It hurts, doesn't it? We go, don't we? And that's even with our spouse or our nurse trying to remove the bandage off our wound carefully, right? It still hurts. Well, picture Christ who's a bloody mess from the scourging before and you know these Roman soldiers were not careful in ripping his clothes off his bloody back. Just that thought should cause us a grimace and pain. Verse 28, they put a scarlet robe on him. Why? Because every king needs a robe, right? Twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head because every king needs a crown. They put a reed, possibly a bamboo stick that they use for beating in his right hand because every king needs a scepter. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And in verse 30, they did something that no man would ever do to his king. They spit on him. Jay Lingenduggan pointed out, spitting was one of the most grievous insults you could give short of physical violence against a person. And the Jews considered the spittle of Gentiles to be especially unclean. And here the Lord of glory was spat upon by pagan soldiers. And as awful and as disgusting as all of this was, it was all a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 30 continues, they took the reed, the king's very own scepter. And what did they do? They struck him on the head, driving the king's very own crown of thorns further into his head. And as you look at 27 through 31 and you visualize in your mind what Christ was going through, it makes Peter's words to us later after this event when he recorded it just that much more amazing. He said, for to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He went through everything in this narrative And he did not commit a sin. No deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's amazing. He's our example. John tells us in his gospel that after this moment, 27 through 31, Pilate brought Jesus again before the crowd and he said, behold the man! Hoping that they would see him in that condition and have pity. Trying one last time to release Christ. Behold your king! John says, The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And he says, well, shall I crucify your king? And look at this. We have no king but Caesar. Matthew 27, 31, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Pilate here was more concerned about pleasing the Jews, more concerned about pleasing Caesar than he was about pleasing God. 
And that's in the scriptures so that you and I don't make the same mistake, right friends? We looked at this last week. Our purpose in life is to do what, church? Say it with me. Please, God. How do we do that? By living for the one who died for our sakes and was raised again. That's how. Pilate should have taken a stand for Christ. He should have understood when you take a strong stand for the Lord, you will alienate some people from time to time. You can't get around it. It's the truth. It is impossible to please everybody. Have you found that out yet in life? It's impossible. But if you make it your daily aim to please God and be obedient to his word, you won't cave and pressure moments like Pilate faced if that's your daily aim. I'm going to please God and be obedient to his word no matter what, even if it doesn't make someone happy. The Jewish priests, the elders, the crowd, Pilate, they all serve as a warning in the scriptures to us. If you reject Christ, you will be condemned. But here's the good news. Are you ready? If you believe that Christ died in your place, you will be pardoned amen in this narrative we were introduced to a man who was rebellious he was a murderer he was a robber bottom line guilty man his name was barabbas and he was pardoned through no merit of his own simply because jesus christ the righteous man died in his place. We don't know much about Barabbas at all. We don't even know if Barabbas repented of his sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. But what we do know, what we can see about Barabbas is he's a type of all sinners. That includes everyone listening right now. He's a type of all of us. And here's what I mean by that. Barabbas deserved to die. Would you agree? And all of us deserve to die. And ironically, Barabbas was actually guilty of insurrection, the very thing that the leaders in the crowd were accusing Christ of being. So if Barabbas was executed that day, nobody would have batted an eye because he was guilty of that. Deserving to die. But that's you and me, loved ones. The Bible says, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Barabbas deserved to die. We deserve to die. Barabbas didn't earn his pardon, and we cannot earn our pardon. When he was in prison... Barabbas didn't earn a good behavior allowance that they provide the prisoners in the state of Illinois. He didn't earn that. You don't read about Barabbas going before Pilate saying, please, Pilate, please, I've learned my lesson. I, I promise you I will never, ever do this again. Let me go. 
You don't read about Barabbas saying, please, Pilate, I promise I'll wear the orange vest. I, I will serve for a hundred hours in cleaning Caesar Farm Road. Did you see what I did with that one? You don't read about him getting out at all that way. Barabbas was pardoned from in, apart from any work of his. All he could do was receive the free gift of grace. And loved ones, that's how you and I are pardoned for our sins. We don't deserve salvation. We can't pay for salvation. We can't earn salvation. All we can do is receive the free gift of God's grace through faith in Christ. That's it. Jesus died in Barabbas' place, and Jesus died in our place. Verse 38, you notice there are two robbers crucified with Christ, one on the right and one on the left. And there's a good, good chance that those two robbers were partners in crime with Barabbas. And the reason I say that is because Matthew uses the same Greek word for robbers that John uses to describe Barabbas. And if that's the case, then literally Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, the place where Barabbas was going to be executed. Three of those robbers right together. That's what we're getting at here. Which means Jesus took the cross of Barabbas. He took the nails of Barabbas, those things were all intended for Barabbas. And loved ones, the Bible says that Jesus died in our place. That's good news, amen? That means the spotless, innocent lamb of God took our cross, took our nails. He bore the wrath of God for our sins died as our substitute. Tells us that the Son of Man, he didn't come to this earth to, serve, to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life a ransom for many. It's amazing. For our sake, friends, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That means if you believe that Christ died in your place, you will be pardoned and not condemned for judgment. That's the good news. So as I wrap this up, I want to point out to you the unique irony in this narrative. It's found in the Aramaic meaning of Barabbas' name. Bar, if you know language, son of, Abba, what's that? Father, son of the father. And what I want you to see here is what happened on that Friday of Holy Week. The son of the father, whose name was Barabbas, was pardoned and lived while the real son of the father suffered and died.
That's intentional, friends. And the Bible says if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will have life in his name. But it also warns that if you do not believe in him, you're condemned already because you've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And friend who's listening to this, if that is you, you've not believed in the name of the Son of God, please understand you're not free right now. You are enslaved to sin. You're sentenced to death. You're completely unable to save yourself. You are in a terrible place. This world is full of people just like you. And specifically during this exact time of the year, these people who are enslaved to sin, sentenced to death, completely unable to save themselves, but they're duped in their minds thinking, I can save myself. I can do these things and I will be saved if I do them. And so right now you have people during this next month who are going to crawl on their knees over broken glass towards a crucifix in a shrine thinking that's going to save them. You got some that will hire someone to flog them with a whip or to put a crown of thorns on them. Some, I read, even go so far to being nailed to a cross thinking that's going to save them. These are extreme measures that people are going through to try to get saved. And others don't go that extreme, but you know them all around us. Others are fasting on days like Ash Wednesday and every Friday. Doing all kinds of good works, giving alms, thinking this will save them. And none of these efforts, extreme or less extreme, will save. None of them. None of them will spare anyone from sin and death. Why? Because the Bible tells us the truth and it says salvation only belongs to the Lord. Which means your only hope, listener, is to turn to Christ for salvation. That's it. On the cross, Jesus fully paid the penalty you deserve for your sins. Which means the only way for you, listener, to become a true son of the Father, a child of God, is by God's grace through faith in Christ. That's it. And so I ask you, what will you do with Christ? If you reject Christ, you remain condemned you will face judgment. But if you believe that Christ died for your sins, he will pardon you from your sin. He will give you the free gift of God, eternal life. So I urge you, right where you're listening, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you need help making this most important decision, I'd be more than willing today or sometime this week to help you.
You've got friends that you come with or you're listening with right now online that would be glad to help you. Please reach out. Get the help you need. Trust in Jesus today. And for those of my friends who have already believed in Jesus Christ, you know he's died in your place. Here's what God wants you to do with this message. Praise him for your wonderful Savior who's provided you living hope. Praise him. Praise him for his cleansing blood. Praise him for the forgiveness of your sins. Give Christ all your heart. Amen? Father, thank you so much. I just pray that you would use your word in a powerful way right now. Those who need the Lord, I pray you would draw them to saving faith in Christ. I pray again, God, today would be the day of their salvation. You love them. You want them to know that they know that they know the living hope that's available to them through Jesus Christ. For us who have that living hope, I pray even as we close in song that we can belt out from the bottom of our heart how thankful we are for our wonderful Savior. Help us to live in light of what he has done for us. I pray this all in Jesus' name.